When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Peoples and Things, a podcast about human life with technology. I'm your host, Lee Vinsel, an associate professor of science, technology, and society at Virginia Tech. You can reach me with comments and suggestions at leevinsel at gmail.com or on Twitter at STS underscore news. I would love to hear from you. favorite tools, but maybe really toys to use in the whole world, is Google Ngram, a freely available software tool that you can find easily by, well, by Googling Google Ngram, which is spelled N-G-R-A-M. Google Ngram uses the sources found in Google Books to explore usage patterns of words and phrases over time. To give one of my favorite examples I often use in class, if you pump the phrase need to unwind. Into Google Ngram, you'll see that the phrase emerged in the mid-1950s and really took off in the 1980s. Is it about Cold War anxieties? Or is it, as I've always expected, about watching television? I'm not sure, but it's kind of cool. Or to give an even simpler example, if you examine the phrase peanut butter and jelly, you'll see that it basically didn't exist before World War II and rose slowly before rising more swiftly in the 1990s. Google Ngram can be a lot of fun. But we can also use the tool for more serious things. If you put the word innovation into the tool and look at the period from 1800 to the present, you see that use of the word actually went down a bit in the early 1800s and then remained fairly static for over 100 years before rising sharply in the late 1950s, and especially in the 1960s and since the 1990s. For a long time, Ngram only went up to 2008, and we were left wondering, did use of the word innovation continue to rise, plateau, or decline between 2008 and now? Well, last year, Google expanded the tool so that you can now see up till 2019. And what we see is use of the word just goes up and up and up. We're talking about innovation more and more. What is that all about? Well, as Andy Russell and I examined in our book, The Innovation Delusion, and the late Benoit Godin, my Virginia Tech colleague, Matt Wisnowski, and others have also looked at, innovation is a multifaceted ideology. 
But above all, it's about chasing economic and business growth. And that's what we see when we look at books, articles, reports, and other things from the 1960s, 1970s to the present. What we see is all kinds of people asking, how can we get more innovation to get more growth? But innovation is a global ideology, and we need to know much more about what the word means in countries outside the North Atlantic. One of the great studies that fits this bill is Lilia Rani's Chasing Innovation, Making Entrepreneurial Citizens in Modern India. In this far-reaching interview, Irani and I discuss how the ideology of innovation works in India and what powerful people there have used the idea to do. We also talk about Irani's activist efforts in the Bay Area, including organizing against digital technology firms and her hopes for the future. Just to highlight one idea of Lily's that I really love, she talks about innovation's others, the people who will never be innovators and get left out of its vision of society. Some of these folks are the people Andy Russell and I call the maintainers, the people who keep our society going, but it goes well beyond that. And so as we wrestle with the work that the concept of innovation is doing all around the world, we must ask who it leaves behind. I hope you enjoy this interview. Get excited. Lily, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thanks for doing so much to get everybody thinking about questions of technology and maintenance and the infrastructures that we live with. And this podcast is just one example of that. Thank you. Um, I really love Chasing Innovation. It's, it's one of my favorite books for the, from the last few years. So I wonder, when you've had to introduce it to people, as we all do, what do you tell them that Chasing Innovation is about? Oh, wow. Um, I guess one thing that one way I describe it is, you know, we have all these issues around housing and infrastructure and healthcare. And why did we think that some entrepreneurs were going to be able to solve it all? <laughs> and what's yeah. wrong with that idea? I think that's a big part of what the book is about. But then it does that by looking at the specific people who are called to that vision of entrepreneurship and are trying to drain themselves in their lives trying to do it. Um, it looks at the kind of relationships they end up developing with other people that are the workers that they need to actually take these projects off the ground and the ways that that kind of work that's necessary ends up being made invisible or devalued in favor mm -hmm. of the work of innovators. Um, and it tries to show how no matter how hard a small group of people try, like they're not going to be able to actually change the world <laughs> as that cheesy yeah. quote goes, unless they uh, become part of larger social movements that can change the political conditions and the rules of the game. Mm -hmm. And you have a kind of, you have an interesting mm -hmm. background. You, your first degree was in CS, is that right? Yeah. And how, how did you go from computer science to science studies? What was that transformation like? Um, I don't know if you've heard, but being a woman in computer science is kind of a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> I have heard. But I've not uh, lived it. <laughs> uh, I mean, 
there's like so many weird fragments. Um, you know, my mom actually programmed computers in the seventies at IBM in Iran, but she was a secretary. Like nobody thought it was fancy work. And Nathan Ensmegger's written about that when the computer yeah. boys take over. Mar Hicks has written about that. But I kind of grew up like living the contradiction of mom was a programmer and now nobody thought she was that cool. And now everyone was obsessed with me in the nineties and two thousands about whether I become a programmer and I got to do it for feminism mm. and the nation. So I think <laughs> that was one issue, but then this question of, you know, if technologies are just built by people who share really specific and privileged life experiences, like what does that do to the rest of the people who experience that tech infrastructure um, was another question that I had and is uh -huh. what first drew me to design as a way of huh. trying to, uh, make the technology address the needs of more people. But then I think through the process of writing, chasing innovation and doing that, studying actual designers in the world. And I mean, I'd actually worked as a designer before too. Like it, it took me like about a decade to realize why design is never going to be enough to make technology uh, serve everybody democratically, that it's going to serve yeah. enough people to kind of get the contract for the city or to get us to buy it and put it in our pockets. But um, yeah. it's, you know, designers don't have political power. So that, so science studies was a place where I could go on that journey and find other people who've been trying to think about related questions and, and learn what I need to learn. <laughs> yeah. My God, I want to, now I want to have a whole conversation with you about the way people talk about design and politics today and, and see like design <laughs> itself as a, a road to like a better future. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's like so many, so much to say there. But I'm down. Um, <laughs> Say one. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how did you specifically make the transition? I mean, how did you get into science studies? How did you find it? I've, I guess I found it when um, I was doing an undergrad thesis, trying to understand where uh, women were falling out of the CS courses where I did my undergrad and I was interviewing a bunch of women. And then I had a friend, Casey Alt, who was a history of science PhD student. And he said, Hey, have you read Donna Haraway's The Cyborg Manifesto? <laughs> and, uh, you know, that was impossible. Like I tried reading it. And I'm like, I do not understand this at all. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> um, but then there were these seminars that were happening, um, where they were like historians and archaeologists and mm. uh, sociologists and they were talking they were having science studies conversations and so i just went in there as a computer science person and i would just like ask questions about the tech like hey like mm. this media theorist says this but i don't really think that's quite how computers work or um yeah. you know what about this thing and they seemed they were they were open and they were happy to explain stuff I didn't know and hear stuff that I knew that they didn't know. And it became kind of symbiotic. That's awesome. <laughs> now I'm picturing you as um, like trying to struggle with the cyborg manifesto and re listening to like Bell and Sebastian and just being totally <laughs> lost. <laughs> Those things do kind of go together in the same like rough time period of like, yeah, 2003. <laughs> so uh, yeah, like I, I think I read the cyborg manifesto like 10 times over 10 years. And um, I think the best shot I had at understanding it was I worked with Kavita Phillips, the historian who was at UC Irvine. She's at UBC mm -hmm. now. Um, but I remember she gave it to me and she's like, notice how it was published in Socialist Register. <laughs> yeah. Like this is, this is not just about humans and technologies in new combinations. It's actually about 
like capitalism and work and global extraction and like how that mm. makes us into the kinds of people that we are but at the same time it also opens up new possibilities yeah no that's really important context for that piece i think so how did you originally start working on the dissertation that led to chasing innovation how did you pick your site and you know how do you how do you do it so i had been working at google in the mid 2000s when it was it was expanding from a startup to the seedlings of the megacorp that we see today and they were trying to hire people in india and china uh to you know for all kinds of reasons but one of the things they were doing was hiring designers and i got really interested in some of the things that i was hearing coworkers say when they were interviewing designers from the other these other places like you know one really prominent silicon valley designer you know he just got off an interview with an indian designer and he was like you know how can these people design when they don't even know what the universal principles of good design are and i was like what is the universal principle of good design he's like vignelli grids it's like vignelli is like a typographer it was like very hmm. if you ever seen an american apparel website or like a new york times website like those are some basic typographical uh. principles but he had this assumption about what kinds of cultural like aesthetics and uh, promote like literacy information transfer huh. and like as somebody who grew up in an Iranian family I did have enough of a sense of hey aesthetics can be really different the kinds of ways people learn to read or engage with a text or a script can be really different um, and at the same time like Google was getting its butt kicked with like their products that we thought were terribly designed that were actually like super successful in Brazil and India and our user experience team couldn't explain why so the globalization of like Silicon Valley expertise was like one way that I started getting interested in the project that led me to um, this Indian design studio in Delhi that I studied. Um, and then the kind of, you know, like the kind of racism that seemed tied to the idea that Europe and the US are at the cutting edge and that people who mm -hmm. have different kinds of technological infrastructures or ways of organizing the economy are like necessarily lagging behind. Like that didn't sit right with me as an immigrant mm -hmm. kid. And so that was also part of why I um, was looking for the kinds of places that were like this design studio. And so the folks in the design studio I talked to were like, yeah, like we deal with like a lot of these kinds of biases and assumptions huh. with people that we collaborate with all the time. So yeah. please come study it. But then when I got there, um, I also saw that, you know, there was a very first project that uh, I was doing field work on, like all these people in a rural village were telling the designers who were like born and raised in India, but hired by a US philanthropy and nonprofit. Um, like all these people in this village were saying, hey, like we don't need this bacterial water filter. Like we need fluoride water filters. We have a huge problem with fluorosis in our region. And then I saw the the designers, when they took that back to their funders, um, the funder was like, well, we're not going to do a fluoride water filter for a bunch of reasons I described in the book. Like we are committed to designing a bacterial water filter that people will buy and use even if they don't think they need it. And like, how do we market wow. this to them? And so that was a moment where I felt like this, this like question about like racism and colonialism and the structure of expertise kind of also collided with um, as a design expert coming into this project, I was like, everything I've been taught is actually a lie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like design is supposed to make technology that people actually need and want and can use addresses their problems. But like, here's how it's being uh, actually, it's actually a tool of power 
to impose certain technology infrastructures on people um, and make yeah. it more acceptable. So that became the journey of the dissertation that became the book. Yeah. I mean, did you did you know going into it that you were going to end up seeing the studio as this kind of microcosm of this kind of ideology of entrepreneurship um, and innovation that you write about so well in the book? So like when I first started the project, I was interested in how designers who are at what in like what Carol Lupadia, who's an anthropologist, calls an outpost of the global economy, were dealing with trying to integrate themselves into these transnational technology design and deployment processes. And yeah. then as I did the field work, it became really clear that the designers were not just doing work. They were also evangelizing design as this way of doing kind of yeah. reform and nation building. And so dissertation was a lot about design and how design frames certain people as able to see systematically or see the future and other people can't properly see the future or reason about the future. Yeah. So they need to be designed for, <laughs> um, yeah, and, it's, yeah, and yeah. it's good for everyone for that division of imagination and labor to happen. Um, but then as I was trying to turn it into a book, you know, I felt like I don't, I, I did, I struggled a lot with, I didn't want to throw people that had let me come and study their work practices and the situation that they were in. I didn't want to throw them under the bus. And in a way, I felt like design was actually just the nice person's version of this larger entrepreneurial and innovation ideology. Like we had people like Peter yeah, yeah, Thiel yeah. or Steve Jobs who were, you know, claiming that, you know, they're going to create all this beauty in the world through mass kind of financing to gain monopoly and like factory conditions that are not particularly accountable to providing good work, you know, good work conditions for yeah, everyone yeah. involved. So uh, the turn to focusing on entrepreneurship and innovation, it seemed like the thing that was more needed for the public conversation that we were having globally and that the designers could become a really helpful example of, hey, even when you have the best of intentions and you're trying to channel it through designing and including people's voices, here's how even that version of it, you're gonna hit contradictions. <laughs> so mm -hmm. yeah, sometimes I think about like, yeah. who's your favorite enemy, your smartest enemy to argue with, like the most the mm -hmm. most thoughtful adversary, you know? And um, designers I, seem like the most well-intentioned and the most thoughtful in the ways that they were, uh, they have historically tried to mitigate the effects of industrial capitalism <laughs> on yeah. people. And so if I could show how that's going to run into a wall, maybe we could clear the ground for more democratic forms of politics, replacing mm -hmm. this like hopeful expertise. Yeah, right on. Um, at the beginning of the book, getting getting into the entrepreneurship idea a bit, you, I really love just the, the first paragraph where you talk about how the notion of entrepreneur started out as this rather humble uh, thing, meaning like uh, someone who managed an enterprise and undertook projects financed by others to, and saw them through. And then, you know, you blow you really nicely kind of blow out from there about how it takes on this very dramatic t hue and ends up like fodder for TED Talks and Harvard Business Review uh, articles and in all these kinds of things. So, I mean, how do you how do you understand this kind of transformation around entrepreneurship and how the notion changed so much? And, you know, you can talk about India specifically, but maybe we should just talk about 
this transformation that entrepreneurship goes through. Yeah, I think India is a, I think like thinking about how that transformation happened in India can help us notice things about the transformation in other places because entrepreneurship is sort of this buzzword in so many countries. Um, in India, the transformation looked like, you know, yeah, entrepreneurship was uh, for a long time about, hey, we've got all these small and medium businesses. Uh, there aren't enough jobs in all the state-owned enterprises, so we need to enable people to create, you know, their own jobs like out in rural areas. Uh, but when entrepreneurship really took off was when India's um, the Indian government kind of stepped away from its commitment to redistribution and to state-run industries and to import substitution and started selling off those state businesses and liberalizing and privatizing the economy. They'd already started to do things like reduce labor rights in order to give business people more flexibility in how they run their operations in the 80s. And by the, so when, um, and it was interesting because these economic reforms were not something that was uh, widely accepted by the big domestic industrial titans, but it was required because India needed loans from the World Bank. And uh, this, you know, these became, this kind of liberalization became a, uh, condition of getting those loans. But, but the industrial titans, they didn't want to compete with businesses elsewhere. So the Indian government, Lata Varadarajan has written about this, would say, hey, you know, you industrial titans, you've had 50 years to build your businesses. Like now look at the, what Indian entrepreneurs are accomplishing in places like Silicon Valley. Like you don't need us to kind of scaffold you anymore. Like you can complete, you can compete globally. But also um, as the Indian government liberalized and privatized, it, started to rely more on public-private partnerships to like build roads or to create infrastructures like hospitals or relying on nonprofits to do things like run schools. And so their entrepreneurship became a kind of way of telling a triumphant story about the state backing away from what had been its obligations yeah. previously and saying, oh, look, this is not about us withdrawing. This is about showing what Indians can really do by creating all these enterprises. The thing that I found really concerning that came out really clearly in, in you know, studying India was that uh, entrepreneurs were being given the kind of work that might have been done by the state and gone through some kinds of like regulatory or oversight processes, however slow that is. Yeah. So entrepreneurship is not just you know, about starting your own business and investing in yourself the way we tend to talk about it when we think about places like the US or Europe. It's actually putting, it's, it's actually charging some people to be in charge of other people, whether they're the workers, yeah. whether they're like the people who rely on the services um, and allowing them to kind of design those uh, collective infrastructures uh, that, you know, undergird public life. And that transfer of power is something that I think is wrong and we need to be moving in the other direction. And I think like now mm -hmm. when we look at like how much big tech defines in a lot of parts of the world, like the ways we communicate, um, you know, how data sharing works, uh, how our attention gets monetized. I think that that need to bring democratic control over these infrastructures that were once an entrepreneur's dream becomes even more obvious. Yeah. That's really nice. I'm I, when I talk about the history of innovation speak, as you know, Andy and I call it. Um, you know, one of the things we point out in some talks is that um, you know, if you do a Google ngram and look at word things over time, you know, the the period where innovation's really going up and up and up is precisely even in the U.S. Like the moment we're cutting back the social safety net, 
and and cutting welfare and all these things right so i think this is pretty common around the world um is that you know this goes hand in hand with neoliberalism and and kind of the pulling back of the state and then there's this kind of fantasy that private industry through innovation and starting up new enterprises is some gonna how gonna like deal with those social problems for us you know absolutely it becomes a kind of morality yeah um i mean one to with regards to your points about innovation coming up uh, entrepreneurship coming up with the decline of social services in the u.s a connection between the u.s and india here is in the career of uh, bill drayton who's the founder of an organization called ashoka that um you know, for decades has gone around the world giving awards to change makers who are people that they see as, you know, bringing about some positive change that they can then scale up across a lot of people. And uh, Bill Drayton was a Reagan appointee to the EPA. And when he wrote about social entrepreneurship, I think he first started writing about that in the 70s, he specifically talked about it as a way of making change, uh, not through redistribution and not through conflict, but through persuasion. Mm -hmm. And he would even cite Gandhi as this positive example of somebody who, I mean, Gandhi was actually sponsored. I write this in the book. He was actually sponsored by rich industrialists in India. Right. And he was not a communist. He thought that um, a social movement should persuade the rich to give some land to the poor people. Um, and, you know, I think the history of India shows that the poor people, when the rich give some land, they don't give the good land right. <laughs> to the poor people, the really productive land. Um, so Bill Drayton specifically posed the social entrepreneur as a person who could kind of be a visionary, but not struggle for power. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's one of the reasons why this figure has become so important. You know, even when mm. you saw like the Occupy movement saying that Wall Street um was putting the 1% above the 99% at you know, the same time you had a bunch of business schools who started opening social innovation yeah. programs and social entrepreneurship programs to say, oh, look, we're not all Wall Street. Like, we can also do good. Like, don't stop believing in capitalism. Just start <laughs> right. doing it in this different way. Yeah, <sighs> totally. Um, what does your, your notion of entrepreneurial citizenship allow us to see in this kind of picture you've been painting? Yeah, the, the reason I kind of named that as a term was just to help us see how um, entrepreneurship is not just about business, as you were saying, um, it is a form of morality that's about building up yourself, your own aspirations, your own career as a way of actually being part of a larger social and political community yeah. and that you're asked to belong to the nation, you're asked to contribute to nation building, but only in these particular ways. So in my in my book, like one of the things that became really clear was that um, you know, the rhetoric of becoming an innovator as an entrepreneur was associated with the um, with India signing on to the World Trade Organization trips intellectual property agreements mm. where reverse engineering a life saving drug so you can produce it cheaply became uh, something that was uh, became a patent violation. And so inventing new stuff all the time yeah. that investors can invest in that can make money became the morally superior way to, to build up the nation's economy. Mm. Um, it also becomes a, it also becomes moral in the sense that, and you know, the entrepreneur can claim that, you know, we hear it all the time. Like, Oh, well, I create jobs. What do you do? I right. do the jobs, I guess, you know, yeah. but like, yeah, yeah. you know, every, everyone who's not an entrepreneur is framed like, mm. Oh, you're such a slacker. Cause all you're doing is working for these enterprises. <laughs> um, right. 
And so I, my hope was that by naming it, um, it would make it easier for people to see how this is a process that's maybe happening in other places as well. Yeah. I believe in this kind of middle range theory idea from sociology where I'm not trying to make something that's generalizable everywhere, but yeah. I'm rather trying to make a concept that helps us notice something that's happening faster and more accurately than we could before because that concept exists. But it might, you know, there might be variations to it, how it plays out in different places. <laughs> I think you do a great job of that. Um, what, I really like how you uh, you put your story in the history of economic development. I mean, it's some in some ways, this um, this has come out already in the way you talked about the way government was pulling back. But you do put it in the in the story of you know the the role of the state in developing places, especially like poorer countries like India, where there's this whole like long, very Western dominated notion of development, right, and what that's supposed to look like. And innovation becomes a complement or even a subs like a substitute for it, right? Entrepreneurship does. Are there other places you see that kind of playing out that you haven't talked about so far where, you know, entrepreneurship is the new development, I guess? Mm. You know, to be honest, like I what something I see is a kind of reversal of it. Like if I think about San Diego and with a lot of the movements around like Black Lives Matter, mm. uh, police brutality, I think when people have conversations about racial inequity and intergenerational um, wealth transfer that benefits whites and um, think, you know, systems like redlining or economic exclusion that have, you know, reduced uh, economic stability in black communities. Like I, th I think that in a way it's kind of, it's keeping the focus on the kinds of violences mm. that create the inequality. Um, I Do you see innovation as being, like I think in San Diego, like there's one community that I think is the, like our former mayor and his economic development people that really did pitch innovation and building up entrepreneurship yeah. as a mode of economic development in the cities. And they installed a whole surveillance system to produce data so entrepreneurs could build apps on it. Um, but on the other hand, I think people are, there's another group of people who are kind of tired of hearing that yeah. innovation hype yeah. and are developing movements to counter it. And so that, that gives me hope, but mm -hmm. um I think, yeah, I don't know. Like, no, <laughs> I, I love that. I yeah. could, okay. Yeah, I mean, I think there's with the whole tech lash thing. You know, people might just be getting sick of this crap to some degree. Yeah, like in India, one thing that's been happening is, um, like, a lot of the startups. When I, like when I was talking to my friends, have started to see that there's a few companies in India that are dominating. Uh, you know, people's attention are able yeah. to, you know, produce applications that have a lot of use. And some of those big companies actually have re privileged relationships with the government. And so I think that this idea that if you're an innovator, that you have a chance of making something that people will use, right? People are, lo people are losing that kind of optimism. Yeah. Because uh, they're, they're seeing what has been true for a long time, which is, you know, governments can pick winners and governments, sorry. I don't know if it should I re-record no, that no, governments no, can't fine. pick winners. Yeah, governments okay. can't pick winners. <laughs> um, I should re-record it in case the ringing was happening. Um, 
I mean, I think one of the things that happens is that people don't know like what to do instead. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, based on my own biography working in big tech and then thinking design was going to be a better way to do it if you could just make it more equitable and then losing like then realizing that like the political system's really going to structure you know what kinds of designs are viable or you know the economic players are going to structure what kinds of designs are viable i started to feel like um my immersion in design and tech uh was a kind of de a political de-skilling uh-huh. where all i knew I, all I knew how to, what I knew how to do was like show up at protests. People told me to show up at, or maybe write letters to my Congress people, but I didn't know anything about how to, yeah. you know, or maybe I could sign a union card, but I didn't know how to organize, you know, in my own neighborhoods or in my own workplaces and to identify problems that we were going to work on collectively and to try to make new things viable rather than what designers do over and over, which is a design within the framework of what has already been designated as viable and yeah. not question it. Um, so I think that that's why I take a lot of hope in things like tech work or social movements. Yeah. I think there's like a lot of, and other social movements. I think there's a lot of people learning how to organize a new, um, and that's going to be a precondition for actually going beyond saying innovation is not going to get us where we want to go, mm-hmm. but how do we, imagine and then seize the power to do something different. Yeah, I wanted I mean, I'm glad you went there because I was going to ask you about this stuff. So, um, you know, like when when you think about the story you tell in Chasing Innovation and what you see around you in California, I mean, what what alternatives do give you hope? You know, because I think these cliches of innovation and entrepreneurship have so grabbed our mind and there's like you know there's people like elon musk for instance are like you know so celebrated in our culture as like the, you know how we're going to solve climate change and and stuff um so i don't know what what gives you hope in terms of alternatives um i think people you know so in san diego when COVID hit uh group of really experienced community organizers helped get a mutual aid started that's still running a year and a half later that distributes food to people kind of no questions asked about whether they're you know looking for a job or on drugs or yeah. and so something like this the fact that like a bunch of people can achieve and sustain that kind of social infrastructure um and then also you know it is innovative and that they're trying to create something that hasn't um existed in our community mm-hmm. at that scale for a long time um you know like that gives me hope both because of it serves as an existence proof that another world is possible um and it also helps a bunch of people who are involved develop new skills in working towards that world um that's something eric olin wright is somebody that mm-hmm. i've been reading lately um and in this very short book one of the arguments he makes is that if we maybe we can displace capitalism by building these concrete experiments and how to organize things outside of capital, not outside of capitalist logics, but according to, according to nonprofit, how to organize things according to logics that are not based on profit accumulation or the rules capitalism sets up. And then trying to like, then use that as a place to get people invested and then changing the rules of the game to make it easier to have niches of how we do housing or food or whatever like that. I think that's the real innovation Mm -hmm. that um, we're going to need. And actually uh, when I was looking at doing my book research, you know, in the 1800s 
and like early 1900s innovation was used for you know ideas that, you know ideas like in music or religion yeah. or things that were different like there was nothing like an innovator <laughs> um and so maybe we can go back to an older version of innovation mm -hmm. <laughs> where it's about um you know, shifting our understandings of ways of doing things without being obsessed with whether you invented it or not, or whether someone else invented it and they're cooler because of that. Yeah. There's some, um, I imagine these groups you're uh, working with in San Diego or, or affiliated with, uh, at least, um, I bet they use new tools, right? They use, they use, what do they use? The Facebook or what do they use? Discord. Discord, <laughs> right on. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> right. Actual technological Discord, some change. Instagram. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, there's a, but I think like one of the questions that raises is, you know, what, uh, like activists have been, you know, activists working on issues like what's happening in Palestine right now have yeah. talked about how uh, they, Zoom can deplatform talks that they're trying to organize or Facebook had policies that would kind of particularly filter stuff by black activists or Palestinian activists, but then leave stuff by white act, you know, white kind of supremacist activists yeah. up. Um, so I think even though they're, even though these movements are using tools, I think that the use of the tools raises the question of why don't we have, like, what would it take to have the resources to actually maintain and sustain tools that are not subject to monetization or subject to, um, the government putting pressure to like take certain kinds of content down in different places. Like right now, I don't think we have a system like that in place. And uh, yeah, that's one niche that I would love to see people who think about technology figure out together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, so I've been reading Juliet Shores after the gig and I have a, I, mean, I have some skepticism about a lot of parts of it, but I do you know, identify with her talk about kind of using digital tools that are, you know, not owned by these mega corporations to be able to do these kinds of sharing activities. You know, you see around tool mm -hmm. libraries and so many other things. And I think you see similar efforts around COVID, as you've said, right? I mean, mutual aid stuff. But mm -hmm. as you're saying, these people are using Discord. They're not using their own tools. Yeah, I think with uh like open you know someone could say like well what about open source tools but open source tools it takes a lot of labor to maintain those and you know Stuart geiger and dorothy howard who are two people ucsd communication like they've been doing a study on burnout among open source developers yeah. and one of the things that we see is a lot of open source tools are actually you know the labor is subsidized by companies who need those tools yeah and then foundations are interested in funding that stuff because they care about scientific knowledge production, like right. genomics or something like that. So like, what about tools that are just specifically for communities doing stuff that's not super cutting edge, but is actually really important to reducing kind of, so, you know, vulnerability in terms of food or housing. Like we don't have, I don't think we have a structure of philanthropy or like public funding availability like why could why don't our libraries have like public cloud that we can just go and say can you give me my terabyte and like why isn't there a coder in yeah. residence there who can help me find some open source libraries and maybe help my community group customize it and, you know or fork something and then contribute it back um you know there's I, there's so much um there's so much of our tech policy in the U.S. that was about creating a nation of 
tech innovators and consumers yeah. by like channeling certain people into like venture capital funded, like corporate tech. And then everyone else needs to have digital internet access because one, they can then use Facebook and become a customer for these companies. Mm-hmm. Or two, as Dan Green's written about recently, it was also about saying, well, you know, if you have access to the internet, you can learn to be a coder and, or you can learn to be a computer user who can get a better paying job. And so he talks about how the promise of access to the internet is a way of the government in the United States not to, you know, creating a structure where they can like create hope, but then also blame people for their own failures to find a job amidst deindustrialization. Yeah. So um, we got to rethink all of that. (laughs) I remember reading it. And fight for it. I think it was George Packer wrote a piece on the Clintons during the Clinton-Trump race. And um, it was, you know, he had this quote from Bill Clinton saying the Internet was the technology that was going to solve poverty more than any other technology in human history. Right. I mean, this is like (laughs) he was president when he said that. So, um, yeah, it's quite amazing how we've. I remember seeing. I'm sorry. No, I interrupted you. I remember seeing something about how um, Bill Clinton went when he was running for president. He went to Silicon Valley and he went to some kind of like industry consortium group and basically said, like, what do you need to do what you're doing? Like you are all the future. And like one of those things was like making, you know, they they didn't want labor laws that would make it easy to unionize, Mm -hmm. like in their manufacturing facilities and software shops. Um, So it's not just about technology. It's, I mean, that's something that came up in my book too. It's not just about innovation. It's also about reducing the power of labor. Because a lot of times innovation is posed as threatening the visionary progress of the, like the designer, the CEO, who's like, people don't know what they want, but when we give it to them, they will appreciate it. Um, That was called the Steve Jobs approach. But, um, you know, like workers and unions are considered to just get in the way of Mm -hmm. rapidly implementing those visions. Yeah. We're all Luddites and laggards, I guess, right? Just holding the yeah. system back. I would like move fast and break things, right? Yeah. But we're saying, can you stop breaking things so fast, actually? <laughs> can we like stop and think about it? Like that's one takeaway from my book, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. And then Facebook tapped the, the lamer uh, motto of like move fast and build infrastructure or something like that. So even oh, oh that's a rebrand. <laughs> yeah, I've not heard that, but like, sounds like someone in marketing is listening because the you know yeah, like move fast and break things is totally hoodie baby boy material. Yeah. <laughs> and um, that's int- move fast and build infrastructures yeah. that are unilaterally owned and governed. <laughs> that's great. Are, are there other things that give you hope? I think one other thing that gives me hope that wasn't happening when I was working in big tech in the mid 2000s is all these tech worker movements of people in companies like Google or even Salesforce, lots of different companies saying, we're the ones who are laboring to create this technology and we don't want this technology to be used for deportations and separating families, or we don't want to make AI for Pentagon drones that are going to bomb the Middle East. it's a really hard road to organize, but I think it really, like, it's through their movements that I really realized, like, just how important it is to have public oversight of these technologies, to have regulations that make it easier for people to actually, or- to, to organize, to have whistleblower protections, um, or even to have regulations that make certain uses of the technology 
you know, to ban them because they mostly can lead to human rights violations. So, you know, at the same time as we're trying to create little pockets of the other kinds of infrastructure practices like mutual aid or digital tech for communities that we need, we also have to recognize that the government and big tech are working together and we are not going to be able to change the rules of the game unless we're organized strong enough to actually propose and demand you know, alternative like regulatory frameworks or ways of resourcing this stuff. So yeah. I think both sides. That's are a great necessary. point. I mean, I just there's I think there's really big economic questions that you know some of my friends in business and economic history, history of technology, ponder about that about in deindustrialization and you know the kind of good jobs that went away mm-hmm. and the jobs that mm-hmm. have you know there's been a lot of jobs added since the 1970s or 1990s whenever you want to pick your deindustrialization moment but what are the quality of the jobs right and then there is a kind of economic question about well mm-hmm. is the, the the terrible quality of the job really about the decline of the labor movement you know is it like is it really about unions at some level that you know we don't ha- just have better organization so I think it's really, really essential that we work in this way that you're describing. Yeah, and I think also maybe recognizing that the labor movement can be about more than you know wages and benefits, but it can also be about like alienation, like not wanting the things you make to be used a certain way, or it can be about things that you know like workplace safety yeah. or like job skilling issues, like the actual yeah. production process on the ground. Um, I think tech worker organizing is like one pocket of expanded kind of labor movement activity that is highlighting a need to think about what labor can demand like way more expansively than we've gotten used to last couple of decades. (laughs) I wanted to ask you, I mean, I wanted to get in your ideas, innovators, others. I think you've already touched on this and when you're talking about, you know, the Bay Area in in some ways, Um, but you know, one thing you make clear is that not everyone's going to be an entrepreneur connected to what we were just saying. And so they become kind of the unpromising. So I wanted to, you know, who are the people in India who are the innovators, others, as you call them? A term I really thought was great. Um, in India, the others of innovators, the people who are necessary and devalued at the same time for this project innovation. I mean, it could be the consumers, you know, on the like just an everyday way this shows up in design culture is designers who are like, man, I'm using Facebook too much. I got a detox. I'm becoming too much of a consumer, not creative enough. And like yet the whole like economy that's being built kind of like depends and relies on them <laughs> having yeah. that experience and then self-blaming rather than trying to change the infrastructure. Um, others include, you know, people who are factory workers or the software engineers who are building software to spec and are not kind of creating new products. Um, The people who are maintaining software for global companies as part of these big companies like Wipro, um, those those Hmm. people don't really, you know, they're necessary to the software continuing to run, but they're not, they're, they're sort of considered like in potential and if only they could invent their own twitter and google in india and like rise yeah. up to the next level um and then finally um i think people who were you know people who are like the various kinds of social movements who are you know farmers who are struggling against la- land acquisition that's needed to build like some glittering highway to connect two cities and you know 
push their industrialization forward, they're considered kind of these impediments to innovation because mm -hmm. they're slowing down these really urgent processes of change, um, of visionary change. So, yeah. Yeah. And then also to, um, the people who take care of people, the people who keep people alive. Um, so one of the chapters, yeah, I re read um, the work of Prashant Rajan, who had done these case studies of rural innovators who had been given these awards by the Indian government for doing things like inventing clay refrigerators or, you know, really affordable tractors. And, uh, you know, I kind of like read between the lines of his case study and then all the most of those people who got the awards were men. Um, and in all cases, they had some kind of family member who had a steady job as a teacher <laughs> that, so they could afford to take this time out yeah. to like work on their passion project or they um, owned land and they had farm workers who were like creating, you know, pick, picking the food and like they would, you know, get a little bit of wages, but then the, the landowner would have something to eat while they were like building the cool tractor. Um, so, yeah, the caregivers, the people who keep the food coming, um, in the farms mm -hmm. and in the design studio, likewise, are like both necessary and devalued. Um, when Andy Russell and I were writing The Innovation Delusion, mm -hmm. I, I revisited Richard Florida's creative class book, which was all about like rebuilding cities to make them, you know, attractive to hipsters, basically, and economic yeah. growth was supposed to come out of that. And it was amazing when he's defining the, you know, the creative class, they were defined as like against this other class. I can't even remember what he calls them, but it's just like the people, you know, the service workers and, you know, all the people who kind of the maintainers, basically all the people who do the grunt work that keeps mm -hmm. the city going, mm -hmm. you know, and he, his line is something I just can't, I can't remember exactly, but his paraphrase is just say like, and their future is not very promising, frankly. You know, it was just like, yeah, rebuild your city for these like creative class people. And there here's all the other the innovators, others. And they're just going to yeah. be kind of like, you know, they better hope the innovators work out so they have jobs, I guess. Yeah. Like, I I remember he also would call, you know, certain kinds of like hairstylists or chefs that they would count as creative class. And um, it marked a moment when because there was this big move to intellectual um, kind of intellectual property enshrining kind of like this move to like this kind of world trade organization trips agreement basically said that you know new products are you know you can you can patent like you can patent and sorry i need to start this over i kind of it's going to end with like, why is like one person making ramen cool, but a, not other people? <laughs> um, I swear to God. Um, so, like Richard, so, so there's this moment where, uh, you know, in creative class where he counts patents per capita, right. As one of his uh -huh. measures of like how well a city's doing. And, you know, yeah. you can get patents for designing things. Like I, you know, at Google, like I got a patent for designing a heat map calendar. Like, look, it's darker green on days that you search a lot or, you know, so you could patent designs, you can patent mechanisms, you can patent like software or like, you know, hardware mechanisms. Um, and so people who could kind of feel the pulse of culture and do something that's a creative new design, a new aesthetic, um, some technology that fits into culture a different way, like that stuff would be patentable, but then actually just making that thing that people need happen is yeah. completely devalued and so like in the design studio like one thing i kind of just puzzled over was why is it when the cooks make ramen for the for lunch at the studio it's totally not valued as creative 
but when a designer wants to make ramen and like dress it up with some nice scallions and post a picture on Instagram, like it is considered creative because it's like yeah. part of this whole like promise of being able to make new copyrightable or new patentable stuff. And only, yeah. um, but you can't, you can't eat patents. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's something yeah. that made it really confusing to write about this topic because there are so many attempts to say, let's fix the problems of innovation by making it include more kinds of creativity. Let's like recognize cooking as creative and let's include arts in STEM and call it STEAM. And my argument is that you can't just add stuff that you're gonna value in what is fundamentally a regime that only values the new monopol monopolizable copyright or patentable yeah. thing and then devalues all the labor of like maintaining it, caring and keeping things yeah. going. Like you're always going to create this elitist structure. So can we just get over that? Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's even worse than that in a sense, because even if you wanted to, you know, believe in the 50s and 60s version of having these enormous, very successful uh, corporations that are going to produce growth and jobs and profits, um, you know, the, like the last 50 years of innovation speak showed have shown us that we can't do that. Our innovation policy just keeps falling on its face over and over and over again. You know, we're not creating all this economic growth and productivity mm -hmm. change, and it's not working. It's not, And it's not working in places like India. It's not working all over the globe. Right. So it kind of fails on every marker that you'd you'd hope for it. Yeah. In India, a big political issue became jobless growth. Yeah. yeah, I remember reading a World Bank report from 2007 that was about innovation and the intro said something like the most productive sectors of the econo Indian economy are real estate and finance. And I was yeah, like, exactly what? Because I guess productivity <laughs> is like you put in this much input and you get this yeah. much output as measured by financial value. But that's not stuff that creates jobs or stable infrastructure or housing for anyone. Um, yeah, yeah, like and James Boggs in American Revolution, he's a Chrysler worker who's also a communist, and he's writing about his observations of what's happening on the shop floor with automation. And he says, you know, like the unions are very happily collaborating with the company management uh, to promote these job automations that are creating huge swaths of like especially black unemployment in Detroit in the 60s and the US yeah. government like this is their policy like the, the Kennedy administration I guess was investing in promoting automation technology so it's like innovation seems to be about sinking more and more resources into things that denigrate the necessity of human interconnections and human care and yeah. then screaming about why is there all this social instability happening right now why are people so angry at us? Why is there a tech clash? Um, but I don't think we're going to fix it by just designing better stuff for sure. Yeah, I think. Amen, man. Yeah. Um, I have so I wanted to ask you about Modi and how this stuff is panned out under Modi. Have you have you kind of followed the entrepreneurship innovation space in the you know in recent years under Modi? How has it changed or not changed? Um. So one of the things I found surprising researching my book um, was how much was in common between the BJP, which is Modi's party, and the Congress in terms of, you know, innovation policy um, yeah. about labor policy, like labor deregulation. Um, you know, I th I think the the core, you know, in, like, supporting intellectual property agreements. Uh, I think the the Congress party would tend to say, hey, there's some social instability. Let's have 
you know, common minimum program with like food and schooling programs and employment guarantees for everyone. Whereas the more Hindutva fascist version of it, you know, with the BJP would be let's blame Muslims and let's blame migrants and like amp up um, kind of national security concerns on an everyday basis. But the core generators of economic inequality are seem mm. pretty much consistent. Um, yeah. So when Modi came into office, um, I think for me, most of what I noticed was a kind of like he would really embody this kind of visionary authoritarian that I write about some in the book. I don't know if I say it exactly in those words, but the idea that the Steve Jobs approach, yeah. don't ask people what they want, just do it and they'll be happy when they get it. Um, when people woke up one morning and all of a sudden their 500,000 rupee notes no longer worked for that demonetization thing. Um, the beneficiary of that were the fintech companies who all of a sudden got a bunch of anyone who had a smartphone trying to sign up to you know be able to use their money from their bank account through the phone. Um, Modi had this digital India program that was part of what he was elected on. And so I saw that as a really violent tearing apart of people's everyday pra economic practices and then forcing people into the violence of, you know, not having cash available. They've been saving for mm. medical care so they can go wait in the bank line. Um, in the name of finding black money, but really I think to just give digital India this huge boost. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that's, a, I think that's been um, unfortunately like a playing out of some of the dynamics that I identified in the book before Modi's yeah. election. But um, I hope that some of the people in that startup class are also seeing that, you know, the state can make allies and create monopolies mm. out of certain tech companies and there's not really opportunity for them in that mode. Um, but I don't, I don't know. It's really hard to, I don't want, it's hard to say which way India is going. You have yeah. so much communal violence and you have these incredible farmers protests that have been sustained for months and um, yeah. people saying well, no. The pandemic's a mess right now. I mean, it's yeah, awful. It's yeah. I think Modi made a call for innovation. It was like, we need to see innovation in healthcare. It's such an empty yeah. call. Yeah. We've already bankrupt the care infrastructures. You know, it's fascinating, though, what you're pointing to about the ideology of innovation, about, you know, how it's kind of like bipartisan in mm -hmm. India. I mean, it seems true in the States, seems true in mm -hmm. Europe. I mean, mm -hmm. this is the, the really fascinating thing about idea, the innovation as an entrepreneurship as ideologies is they're so mm -hmm. fundamental. You know, it's like mm -hmm. all parties are into them in some level, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think this, I think Dan Green's book Promise of Access actually gives a pretty good account of you know how that can happen because he's talking about kind of digital divide as you yeah. know, not innovation specifically, but the way he talks about it, he like talks about how you know librarians who are getting defunded and trying to stay relevant, you know, you know, to policymakers or students who are trying to find jobs like all of them can find in this digital divide and like promise of digital access a reason to hope yeah. and if you can if you can like take people's dissatisfaction and give them something untried that they can have hope in where you won't realize why it's not going to work where you won't realize why it's cruel optimism as Lauren Berlant calls it for at least like f you buy yourself five years to a decade yeah. of like political cooperation um, yeah. And I think innovation kind of functioned in that way where, mm -hmm. you know, it seemed like it gave an opportunity for, oh, more creativity, more perspectives represented. And 
the products and services that we're inventing. Um, But yeah, I hope to have uh, Dan on soon. Actually, he's one of my next people I'm trying to line up. Awesome. (laughs) Can you you have a new book coming out? I didn't even know about it until today when I was looking you up. Um, mm-hmm. what's redacted all about? You co-authored it. What, what is it? Yeah. Um, redacted is a book I co-wrote with an investigative journalist, Jesse Marks, and we became friends studying or not studying. Exactly. We became friends trying to understand what the San Diego smart street lights program was all about as an infrastructure. Um, I was working with a coalition of 30 community groups, that were worried about these surveillance technologies intensifying policing and law enforcement and criminalization of communities of color. Um, and Jesse is an investigative reporter who had an interest in kind of civil, liberty, civil liberties and privacy issues. And so, um, with like our friendship kind of developed through us like doing public records requests to try to under to try to use the government documents about this infrastructure to understand the reasoning behind the infrastructure, what kinds of decisions were made, and then basically struggling against pub- these documents having huge redactions in them mm-hmm. and trying to, f- trying to figure out, okay, like why, you know, like why are these things being redacted? You know, are there ways to read behind the boxes by putting our heads together, or developing yeah. like relationships with communities who know different histories who can like s- tell us like why this thing seemed politically charged. Um, and so the book's actually, it's about, you know, why do public matters? What, what, why do public records matter in an age of surveillance where there's so much data available, but the government tries to keep us from getting a bunch of data on their operations while they're getting yeah. lots of data on us? Um, and then it has case studies of specific redacted documents that are both kind of absurd and um, say something important about city politics of infrastructures and institutions like policing and surveillance. And then it has a section at the end that's like interviews with both a lawyer that helps like citizens get uh, pushed back when the government tries to keep them from getting documents. And also somebody who'd been a public information officer and was on the government side of it, talking about um, all the different things that can influence like whether you get a document or not. Uh, So we're hoping that it's a tool for activists who want to, get deeper into how the public sector is working and find their ways uh, around that. And also like recognizing that the public sector works so much with the private sector that sometimes when we have these black boxes of like companies and their trade secrets, working through their government relationships can be a way of getting visibility into how these infrastructures of public private partnership get laid out and structure our lives. That sounds great. I can't wait to check that out. And do you know what, what, do you know what, is next for you scholarship wise or you're going to take a break on scholarship and you know, what are you going to do what's next for you i've been doing a lot of work that is just using what i've come to learn about tech and innovation and infrastructures from just my life experience in this research and then putting in a service of specific groups that have a stake and like need something with tech to change so um yeah. over the last 10 years uh Amazon, there's a you know Amazon Mechanical Turk is a gig work platform that provides the foundation of like a lot of human data processing work that's always necessary to train AI and also deal with AI's failings. Um, and actually, the the work of those workers was a big part of my thinking about what's missing from innovation because those workers are literally hidden just to make AI look like it's more successful than it is. Um, so yeah. I've been helping uh, those workers 
uh, start a worker advocacy organization. Um, and uh, sometimes I pinch hit by you know, doing research on why are workers getting their accounts suspended? You know, how can we get more transparency into those algorithms that flag and suspend accounts? Um, I've also been working with my students on a, in collaboration with United Taxi Workers San Diego, and we were trying to convince the city that they need to be providing some kind of municipal support for transportation workers to, um, you know, be to be basically basically we want the city to support and make viable having app-based dispatch for taxi workers yeah. where Silicon Valley doesn't take a huge cut, and we're trying to figure out with COVID budgets what version of that's going to be possible now and in the long term so like working in a bottom-up way to fight for more public digital infrastructures yeah um, that can be alternatives to the silicon valley um or big tech led infrastructures that we have is another big thing that i'm spending a lot of my time on right now i respect that all and i respect you very much <laughs> lily thank you for uh taking the time to talk to me today this has been really great thank you so much for convening these conversations and I can't wait to listen to your podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Peoples and things like most things in this world depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother Jake Vinsel for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy Juliana Castro for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out her work at julianacastro.co. Peoples and Things is a production of Virginia Tech Publishing and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. Production activities are supported by the Athenaeum, a space in the library that acts as a hub for digital humanities teaching, learning, and creation. Joe Fort is the Athenaeum Coordinator and Digital Humanities Specialist at VT Libraries, and he serves as producer and sound engineer for the podcast. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. I also want to thank you for listening. Thanks.